seems so empty when the children go out, doesn't it? It's crazy. But uh, that's our sign of health in a church. It's absolutely great, so brilliant. It's great to be back here again, and uh, we're finishing off this morning our series on Romans. You might think, whoa, hang on a minute, we've got two chapters to finish. That is right. But uh, chapter 16, we're not even going to have a look at much this morning. What I've promised to do is prepare some uh, stuff which tells you about the people who are mentioned in Romans 16, because it is a really interesting list. Now, we've been through some great stuff in Romans, but uh, people often tail off by the time they reach the end of it. And don't think much about chapters 15 and 16, because they say, well, you know, chapter 15 is all about Paul's travel arrangements, and chapter 16 is just saying hello to his mates, so uh, what's to, 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 to interest us in that? That's all first century stuff. It was interesting then, but it has nothing to teach us now. I don't think that's the case, and I want to show you this morning from uh, chapter 15 that actually there's a lot we can learn from some of those incidental details that Paul comes up with and some of the last few things he's still got to say here. Anyway, where have we been in, in the book of Romans? Let's just have a look back at uh, where we left it at the end of uh, chapter 14. Actually, last time we did the first six verses of chapter 15 because it connects on to 14. And uh, the way we've gone through Romans throughout the year has been a bit like this. We started back in the spring last year talking about the world's problem and God's answer. That's chapters 1 to 4. Paul says the whole world stands condemned before God because as human beings, we haven't lived in the way that he dreamt of when he created us. We've not been able to keep our commitments and our promises. And as a result, the whole world is in a mess. Jews can stand up and say, well, not us, we're the people of God. But Paul spends his first chapter showing that not only is the, the Gentile, non-Jewish world in a mess, the Jews don't have much to say for themselves either. And so God would be completely um, justified in pulling the plug on the whole experiment on saying, right, is it all gone too far away? Let's just destroy the world. But he's not going to do that. And so chapters 5 to 8 tell us about God's answer, how Jesus came to earth to do something that we could never do for ourselves, to take on himself the responsibility, the, the shame, the guilt, the penalty of all the things that the human race has done, and to die for on the cross so that it could be forgiven. And Romans uh, 5 to 8 talks about how all of that works and what can happen to us as a result. And it ends with that triumphant declaration, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If we belong to him, then we're in him forever and uh, he will never let us down, as the songs don't sing and say. Then in 9 to 11, this was June to July, we did this stuff when it was just a little bit warmer than now. And in 9 to 11, we talked about the fact that God hasn't abandoned the Jews either. Paul is saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's a complete new deal and therefore God has forgotten all about the Jews. No, the Jews have a lot of privileges. They are still the people whom God chose as his special vehicle to reach the whole of the world. And so where do the Jews fit into this? And he spends uh, three chapters talking about that. And we've been, for the last few months, uh, talking uh, about 12 to 16, the bit where Paul swings round in the letter and says, okay, that's all I have to teach you. Now, let's apply this. What do you actually do with this stuff? How could you live as a result? How do you spend your life on earth in the view of everything that I've said? So that's where we've been. And in this last little bit, we've talked about key principles to bear in mind as you live out uh, the, the life of, God, uh, of uh, Jesus Christ and brought to you through the Holy Spirit inside you. And he talks about the fact that we have to live it out together. It's not just a solo thing that we're doing. And we need to live it out in society with everybody around us. We need to live it out in the church as we're brothers and sisters of one another. And we need to live it out in complete harmony with one another as well. 
And this is the point he's reached in 15, verse 6, where we left it. So that's where I'm going to take it up this morning. The final uh, uh, chapter, as I said, is about uh, brilliant people and dangerous people. Uh, the, the people that he mentions in chapter 16 that they should avoid and the people he wants to send greetings to. And that's what you'll get on a piece of paper or on the internet uh, next week. So last time we were talking about, uh, in, in, in chapter 14, about d d discussions they were having in Rome about the way in which they were not sure how much food they ought to eat. We'd said that churches in Rome had become very Gentile. That's because Claudius, the emperor in AD 49, had thrown out all of the Jews. He just had it with them. He said, no Jew is going to live in this city in future. Well, that was fine for a few years until somebody um, assassinated Claudius. It was actually his wife, but that's another story. And when Claudius was dead, then the Jews were able to trickle back into Rome. And what they found was a very changed atmosphere. Sometimes when you go back to a church that you used to attend years and years before, you find that new ideas and new influences have taken over. New people have brought in a new dynamic, and it doesn't feel like the same church anymore. And that was certainly happening all over Rome. The Jewish law wasn't honoured as much as it had been in the past. There wasn't as much Judaism around the, the Christianity of the churches as there used to be. And that created practical problems, especially with food. Because the Jews, when they had a love feast with the other Christians, were not sure where the meat came from. Did it come from a proper kosher butcher? Or was it food that Jews shouldn't really be eating because of the way they were being killed and all of that sort of stuff? And so uh, there were uh, differences of opinion about that. And as we saw last time, all that Paul does is let everyone be persuaded in their own mind. And he talks about the way in which people ought to live together with different opinions and still honour one another as Christians. And this is the way that the, the, the chapter went and it ended with chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, saying, this is what you all need to do. You eat meat, you don't eat meat. It doesn't matter. This is what you all need to do. And so that's where we take it up. Let's read a few verses, shall we, from chapter 15 and verse 7. Uh, <coughs> Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And then he has a barrage of quotations. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Again it says, rejoice, O Gentile, to people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. And he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at those verses first. What's, uh, we did that last week. Uh, last night, um, Lionel Messi, possibly the greatest football player of all time. Possibly, I'm not sure about that, but certainly uh, uh, one of the greatest football players of our age uh, sent a message to the world by scoring a very, very important goal indeed. His team had been uh, not doing too well through a very boring first half with Mexico, and then Messi, who'd just been trotting around the pitch as if he was a spectator rather than a player, suddenly turned it on. He scored a goal from way far out, in a split second, that just turned the match around. Argentina scored another goal, and now, instead of going home from the World Cup, they look as if they're going on into the next stage. And Messi sent a message to the whole team. 
before, his, uh, before the, 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 the uh, first game that Argentina played. And then he said, we are all in this together. This is his message. There are many memories, good moments and not so good that I lived, but always proud to represent our country and our national team. Tomorrow we start another World Cup with a lot of desire and enthusiasm. We are all in this together. And what he was saying, as Gareth Bale was saying to the Welsh team, was, look, forget that I'm a superstar. Forget that uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be so much better than anybody else. It's something that we're all involved in. I can't win this game for you. I can't do it on my own, but I'll add my contribution. You add your contribution, and together we'll do something important. And I think that's what Paul's saying here in chapter 15. We're all in this together. And through this chapter, you find him saying three important things. First of all, we're all in this together to praise God. Those are the verses we've read already. And I think he goes on to say, we're all we're in, all in this together to tell people. The gospel is good news. People need to know it out there. We are all involved. Forget that I'm the great apostle who travels the world and does all this kind of stuff. Um, we're all involved in this. And the Romans certainly got that message, incidentally, because you find it right through the, the rest of the first century. People are becoming Christians in large numbers in the city of Rome itself. And before you reach a, a, a few years more in history, you find members of the royal family being uh, arrested and sent to prison because of their adherence to strange religions. And that means that people at the very heart of Caesar's household have started becoming Christians just through a bunch of people like this who've kept on telling the message wherever they went. And so Paul said something that he took to heart. But he had a third thing to say as well. We're all in this together to praise God. We're all in this together to tell people. And we're all in this together to serve each other. Because he says at the end of the chapter, look, I want to come back to Rome and see you. Got, well, come to Rome. He's not been to Rome yet in his life. He's had it's an ambition for years. And I want to come to Rome and see you. But before I do that, I have something dead important to do. What is it, Paul? Where are you going to preach the gospel? It doesn't involve preaching the gospel. Oh, okay, so which new countries are you going to open? No, I've, I've done everything all the way around from Rome to Illyricum, which, by the way, means Croatia, the, the Dalmatian coast. I've done all of that. So what are you doing? I'm going to take some money. <laughs> I've taken the collection. I'm going to take it to Jerusalem. And to Paul, that was just as important as anything else he was doing. We'll see why before we reach the end of this talk. Let's look at the first of those, though. To praise God. Paul says it's important that Jews and Gentiles alike come together sink their differences, honour and respect one another so that they can praise God. What's so important about singing hymns? Why is praising God so important? It's what lots of non-Christians don't understand. You all come together and you sing these little ditties to God. Is it that God doesn't know how great he is already? Or does he just like you singing songs to him? Oh, that's a nice song. I like that phrase. Mm, that makes me feel really important. Do we do it just to massage our ego? What is praising God all about? Well, what Paul says here is, I tell you, Christ came for two purposes, not one. <laughs> he said, uh, and, uh, and uh, there's a very important verse there uh, which we need to get hold of. And that is the, uh, the, the thing he says in verse 8. He's just said, accept one another as Christ accepted you. And that is a weak translation. The word accept really means welcome. Make your, you, the, the people who are not like you feel really at home. Welcome one another. Christ welcomed you, didn't he? He made you feel really at home. He made you feel, wow, I'm a child of God. I'm accepted by God. My night has turned to day. It's, it's incredible. I, everything's changed. That's the way you welcome other people. 
You really make them feel secure and at home with one another. And then he says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarch so the Gentiles may praise God for his mercy. Complicated verse. Now, I don't know about you, but one thing I've always found helpful is that when I've got a really complicated bit of Paul like that, I sketch out on the back of an envelope the different clumps of meaning in them. And what I get is something like this. Christ has become a servant of the Jews. That happened, didn't he? The incarnate son of God could have been born Chinese if he'd wanted. He could have gone to Russia. He could have been born in Latin America. Instead, he came directly to be a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. Now, he did that not because he liked the Jews more than anybody else, but because this is what God's truth demanded. And this was in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. And you can see the Jewish Christians nodding along with us and saying, yep, yep, that's right. We're important because Jesus came to our nation in order to confirm the promises made to to the patriarchs. That's to Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob and all of that kind of thing. So God had to keep his promises, and that means we're important. And he says the second thing is this. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, two purposes. Coming to the Jews bless them and get them praising God. Whoa, we're the people of God. We've gone to you. But through that, to fulfill another purpose, so that the whole of the rest of the world, whatever nationality we are, will glorify God for his mercy. And so praising God, telling him how great he is, is part of the package. That's why this brings in these four uh, little quotations that he gives you here. And they come from very important people. The first one, for instance, comes from David in Psalm 18. It's a psalm that's written when David has been delivered from all his enemies. And he's on the throne. And other nations are coming to appreciate just how big a thing God is doing in Israel. And David says that the Gentiles are going to worship God as well as the Jews. And that's that's not the only place it happens, uh, says Paul. There's also Deuteronomy 32. Go way back from David through history to the time of Moses. And before Moses dies, he makes these great speeches to the people of Israel. He's not going to go into the promised land with them, but God has brought them so far, and he's been their great leader. And what he says once again is, um, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. What you are doing, you Jews, going through the river into the promised land is going to bring blessing to the whole world. The whole world will rejoice because of what God is doing through you. And third, there's the Hillel. He quotes from the shortest psalm in the whole collection. 150 psalms. 117 is the shortest, (laughs) and it's part of the Hillel. What's the Hillel? Well, that's the sequence of psalms that uh, the the Jews always used in the Passover service. And these Christians in Rome knew about what had happened to Jesus the night he was arrested, the night before he was tried. They knew that he had the Passover feast with his disciples. Just before Jesus went to the cross, you and me, He had these words on his lips. And if Jesus was saying the words of Psalm 117 just before he died, that shows that's part of his purpose. And even the Son of God says, yes, the Jews and the Gentiles need to praise God together. Then the fourth thing is Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. He meant an awful lot to the Apostle Paul. He quotes Isaiah again and again throughout his letters, doesn't he? And Isaiah is the one who spoke about Emmanuel, the Christmas baby, the one who would be the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, all of that stuff. And uh, Isaiah himself says in Isaiah 11, that what's going to happen is that out of the stump of Jesse, 
the tree that's been cut down from uh, uh, Jesse, the father of David, and all of his descendants, a shoot will come out. Somebody will come out of the house of David who will bring new life to what looked like a dead tree. And all of the nations will come to God through him. And so four times he's saying, this is why it's so important. Jews and Gentiles have got to learn to praise God together because that goes on for eternity. But we go back to the question, why is praising God so important? Because you might think one of two things. Well, either God is perfect, in which case he doesn't need us to tell him, does he? Imagine us all singing hymns, praise is thy faithfulness, O God our Father, and him sitting in heaven saying, yeah, I know, I know, tell me something I don't know. Which is impossible because he's perfect, so why bother? Uh, or else, God is not you. God is imperfect and he can't do without it. And his, his vanity needs to be ministered to all the time. Come on, tell me again how merciful I am. Tell me about my compassion. Tell me about my greatness. <laughs> That'd be nice, come on. Is God really like that? If God's perfect, it's pointless praising him. <laughs> and if God is imperfect, he isn't worthy of it anyway. So why do we do it? Well, it's really not about God. The reason God wants us to praise him is because it's good for us. It's about us, really. And the reason you have to praise God is because praise is always something that completes our enjoyment. You know, when we enjoy something, we just want to praise. We really do. When you think about it, if you meet one of your great heroes, the woman who's written the novel that really changed your life, or the man who scored the winning goal in something, some great game that you... You're just overawed, aren't you? You went, oh, I, I, I don't want to bother you. I, I, you know, I know you're busy and your fans are in your audience, but I just want to tell you how great you are. Oh, thank you very much. Now, please let me get on with my meal. You know, and, and, and we, 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 we tend to do that, don't we? When something's really good, we want to express our praise of it. And we do that with other people too. Look at this poem. Isn't it fantastic? Have you watched that program? You really should. That's the, the best thing that's been on Netflix. For, you know, and, and we do that sort of stuff because we want to draw other people into our enjoyment. And C.S. Lewis once said this, It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's at rest. If boyfriend and girlfriend keep on saying, Oh, you're lovely. You're wonderful. I love you so much. It's not because... Um, they just want to compliment the other person. It's because it increases their own delight as well and their own appreciation of what's going on. It is frustrating, he says, to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly when you're walking at the turn of the road upon a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. <laughs> it's, and, and he says, it's frustrating too to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. You know, you first thing to repeat the people, and there's nobody that gets it. You know, you, you, you may tell it to people, and you think, oh, yeah, very funny. Oh, that bomb, didn't it? You want people to share it. And that's the second thing, you see. It's not just that praise completes our enjoyment. The second thing is other people make it even deeper. When other people join the same thing with you, oh, that's great. I mean, in the places in uh, Qatar where you can actually get an alcoholic drink at the moment, after every game, you'll find loads and loads of people just sitting around tables, just reliving the game they've been through. Wasn't it fantastic when he did that? Oh, and then when that shot went over the bar, I could have died. You know, uh, and you just relive it because it's a great experience that you want to share with the other people. And you're interested in their reactions, and they become part of the whole thing. And that's why Jews and Gentiles praise God together. That's why lots of us, all different from one another, come together and praise God in the way we do. And the third thing is this. It's preparing us for even more. 
because one of these days we are going to be in the presence of Jesus and we'll know what it's like to have the fullness of joy. And the more we learn to praise down here, the better heaven's going to be. The more we will enjoy being there. Uh, by the way, tonight, just to give you an advert, we're going to look at a passage in First Thessalonians, which is one of the most important places in the Bible, one of the two most important places, I would say, for telling us what will happen when Jesus comes back. So if you want to have a look at that, do come tonight. Anyway, that's by the way. It prepares us for the presence of Jesus. It prepares us for what we'll be doing for all eternity. And so to deepen your thrill when Jesus comes back, praise him now. That's basically what it's talking about. But the bit that Jonathan was focusing on in the introduction is important too. And that's where Paul starts talking in the second uh, section about telling people. Um, and let's read a few more verses from verse 14, shall we? I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. And he says, I'm not saying you're bad Christians. That's not why I want you 16 chapters. I'm saying that I, I'm just careful about you. If I have written to you boldly on some points, it is to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ, uh, Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And he says, when somebody goes out, and brings other people to Jesus, it's just like he's a priest or she's a priest, going and, and, and putting them on a plate and offering them up to God. That's what it's about. They become an offering to God. Here you are, God. Here are some of your humans. They've been rebels until now. They've just turned around and accepted Jesus. It's my offering to you. And so that's the first thing about it. The reason we do it, the reason we share our faith, is it's part of our giving back to God. That's what sacrifices in the temple were all about, isn't it? You give back to God part of what belongs to him. And when you help somebody else to become a Christian, that's what you're doing. It blesses them, and it blesses you, but it also blesses God. Because part of his rebellious creation has just returned to the place of love where he wants them to be. So the reason we do it is it's part of our giving back to God. And Paul goes on to say, uh, therefore I glory in God, this is verse 17, in my service to God, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And Jonathan's read this stuff already. In leading the Gentiles to obey God, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit, from Jerusalem all the way around the Croatian coast, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's all, uh, and yeah, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. The second thing is, the effect we have. When you share the gospel with people, and it has an impact. It's through Jesus' power and not your own. And it's wrong to become proud of your own efforts in the gospel. Because if they ever work, it's just because God got speaking through you, through the Holy Spirit. It's not because of anything particularly persuasive or, or brilliant in you. It's simply that God is taking you and using you. And sometimes the people who are used most by God are the people who are least articulate. <laughs> you don't need to be good. You don't need to know lots of arguments. You just need to be doing your best, allowing God to speak through you. I've seen people present the gospel in ways that have made me think, oh dear, this is so crazy. Oh no, I want, I want, I want to go away. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it anymore. Only to find that they're incredibly successful because their sincerity comes across. And other people think, you know, if, 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 if he's so concerned to get this thing across to me, it must be really important to him, him, and therefore it's worth me discovering it. 
And you don't need to be brilliant. You just need to realize you do it through Jesus' power and not your own. In situation after situation, you will feel weak. You will feel, I can do nothing. And that's the devil talking to me. Oh, this, is, this is going to be a waste of time, isn't it? But actually, God's power comes through your weakness, and the effect we have comes through Jesus' power and not our own. Then third was the task we fulfill. <laughs> the task we fulfill depends on what God calls us to. You see, there are lots of ways in which we can, we, he can use us. Verse 20, Paul says this. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And he says, this is why I've not been to Rome yet, because other people have been preaching to you, and so it's not virgin territory. So what do you take into this passage? Oh, we must always preach in virgin territory, you know. When you go and share the gospel with somebody else, the first question you must ask, and it's very important, is, has anybody told you the Christian message before? Oh, they have. Okay, goodbye. No, it doesn't work that way, really, does it? We have different responsibilities. Paul's particular responsibility was to go to places where nobody had been before. Others were different. Look at Apollos, for instance, coming into Ephesus after Paul has been there (laughs) and building something flourishing and incredible that just wasn't there when Paul was there. God used him as an evangelist, too, but in a very different kind of a way. And God needs all of us working in different ways. It depends on what God calls us to do. And then, so it's important just not to repeat what everybody else is doing, but to look for where God can use us. It's important for the church as a whole to think about that. This is something that's been talked about a lot over the last 30, 40 years. This is the 1040 window, the bit that's brown in that, uh, that uh, map up there. And... Uh, It's the part of the world which really needs more Christian input than any other. Two-thirds of the world's population lives there. And get this, the people who live there, two-thirds of the world's population, three three to five have no access to the gospel. Many of those countries are very difficult and Christians aren't allowed in. Even if they are allowed in, Christians aren't there. A very small number of the whole world missionary force is working in that whole area home to 80% of the world's poorest people as well. It includes 6,181 completely unreached people groups. The gospel will not have spread to the whole earth until those groups have heard about Jesus too. 15 of the 22 countries that persecute Christians most severely are in the 1040 window. That's one reason why there aren't too many Christian resources being put in there. Because you don't get the big results, you don't get the great banner headlines for your prayer letter. It's just hard, unyielding, difficult soil to to plant anything in. And so, as a result, only 10% of Christian missionaries throughout the world are working with that two-thirds of the world's population. Now, that obviously is not saying we've all got to do the same thing. We've all got to drop everything and find ourselves a home in the 1040 window and start preaching the gospel there. But it does mean that we've got to look very carefully at our resources and where God is calling people to, and challenge people to think and pray about the, 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 the difficulties of, of places like this. And there is no other place like it on earth, really. And just concentrate on doing things, not in traditional ways that we've always done them, but in ways that really reach people. The way Hudson Taylor did, for instance, in the 19th century. You see, for a century before him, Christian missionaries had been going to China, and they'd all stayed on the coastline. <laughs> China is a pretty big country, and the inland of China had just not been touched at all. And so he started the China Inland Mission. And more than that, he 
began to realize that the Westerners weren't getting through to the Chinese because they looked too different. And so he, he might have a Chinese barber chop off all of his hair, except for a little tuft at the back, and he spent time growing it into a pigtail. And he challenged other people to do the same, and some of them did, as you can see. And some of uh, the, the most brilliant minds in the West, <laughs> uh, people at university, all kinds of things, chose to, to follow his example. And as a result, within a few years, the whole of China opened up to the gospel. And of course, there are more people becoming Christians in China today, even under a communist government, than anywhere else in the world, except possibly Iran, but that's another story. And doing things differently is something that, uh, that needs to happen. That's what Paul did. He thought, where are the needs? And where is God calling me? Uh, this is uh, an example of what's going on in Britain at the moment. We have places in the inner cities where there hasn't been a Christian church for 100 years, where no Christians have lived, because as the inner cities become more desperately poor and derelict and lacking in services, Christians have moved out to the suburbs. And so we have lots of flourishing churches in the suburbs. Who's in the heart of the city? The Eden Project in Manchester has taken cities all around Britain and sent Christians in there. People who could be living in a nice suburban house. And uh, Christians probably are doing a better job, uh, a more affluent job than anybody in the neighborhood they're going to, but who go and live there specifically, taking all of the difficulties on their, the, 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 their shoulders that's involved with that living in those poorer communities just so they can be good neighbors and spread the love of Christ and tell people about Jesus when they get the chance. And the Eden Project is spreading through cities throughout Britain as people think, I'm going to give up my comfortable lifestyle and go where God can really use me. So that's, that's a, uh, what we're saying. We need to be sharing the gospel together and uh, we need to be careful about where we're doing it. Final point, though, because we're, we're going to run out of time here. And there's only a limit to the amount of practice they can do through there. To serve each other. Uh, that's the last bit of the chapter where Paul says, I'm coming to you in Rome, but there's something I've got to do first. He said, uh, I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there uh, after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on, my, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. And what Paul's been doing for the last two, three years is collecting money from the Christians in Macedonia, and further south in Greece. And he's been collecting this money because there are Christians in Jerusalem, thousands of them, we know, who are poor. The city is poor, harvests have been bad, and, and the Christians are living in absolute destitution. And so he's been saying to the Gentile Christians across, uh, across Greece and, uh, and other places too, if these Christians are going to survive, they need help from you. And so he's got this massive contribution together. And he says they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. We share with one another. And he says, after I've completed this task and have made sure that they've received this, I'll go on to Spain and visit you. But I've got to do this first. Okay, I'm a preacher. My job is evangelism. But evangelism has to be lived out as well. So three very quick points about this. First of all, it involved practicalities. And it's not enough for us just to tell people the message. We have to show them the goodness of God as well and show our unity in the faith with other Christians. Uh, the Apostle Paul says about one place he went to work, we, what we preached was not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. And it's, it, it belongs to God, doesn't it? If you preach Jesus Christ as Lord, 
then you preach yourself as a servant of others as well. And the practicalities are part of the deal. It's not just a message of academic good news. It's something that's got to be lived out on a level of sharing practically as well. Second, it involved peril. And Paul asked him to pray for him because he says, um, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. Well, why wouldn't they like him? He's going with lots of money. <laughs> yeah, but he's got to get the money there to start with. And there are no banks, there are no security core vans, there are no international digital transfers or anything like that. You have to take that money in a big chest and uh, uh, everywhere you stay in the journey, the potential robbery point. And so no wonder Paul goes to Jerusalem with a whole bunch of young men uh, who are fairly brawny to, to, to stand around him and make sure it gets there safely. It's a dangerous enterprise. And when he does get there, will they like him? He says, there are unbelievers in Judea. People are already hostile to the Christian faith. And, and pray, he says as well, that my service will be acceptable to the saints there. There'll be problems with some of the Christians as well. And you know from the book of Acts, which we studied last year, that as soon as Paul arrived in Jerusalem, some of the leading Christians called him together and said, well, you, you can see how many thousands of Christians there are here. They're all Jewish, and they are very dedicated to the law. What's more, Paul, they have heard that you uh, have given up in the Jewish law, and you, 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 you think that Gentiles uh, live in the right way, and so you don't observe the Jewish law anymore. And so they've got suggestions how Paul can make himself look more Jewish than he actually is. But actually, it doesn't work. And you know the story, Paul ends up in prison for two years, then he's shipwrecked, and all kinds of things happen before he's able to get to Rome in the way that he wanted to. And so it involved peril and difficulty. And sometimes doing the things that God calls us to will be like that. We have to serve each other despite the dangers and the difficulties of doing so. And finally, it involved prayer. And if you can't be involved in some of the more dramatic things that Paul's talking about here, you can at least be involved in the same struggle, he says, by praying. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. How do you pray for people who are serving God in ways that you're not? Is it just a mention at bedtime, before you go to bed, you close your eyes, you mention a name to God, you leave it at that? Or is it a struggle? Do we really get involved in serious prayer for the kingdom of God in the world, for people who are not like us, for he people who are serving God in different ways, but who need uh, our support because we are part of the same struggle? It's important, isn't it? And all of us serving one another, sharing with one another, praising God together, again, together telling other people the gospel is something we've got to do together. We're all in this together. You're coming back, John? Great. I'll hand over to John.